You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. You're uh, you're one of the OGs, brother, and we've been reminded of that with uh, the Spartan Rewinds that have been coming up. Have you watched any of the Spartan Rewind videos they've been throwing up? I have. They're... Uh... Yeah, they're pretty cool. It's funny. It's it's funny how uh, if I go back like six months ago or a year ago, my mindset was like, I, you know, that was pretty cool. I don't wish I could do it again. But then when I rewatched the reruns, it's like, man, that was some freaking fun times, and that was some pretty motivating, blessed opportunities, if you will. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So it's definitely triggered that, like, holy crap, like that'd be pretty cool to go back two years ago or three years ago or it definitely makes me ask the question of like, what do I need to get, do to get back to a certain fitness level to come back one more time to like come at some of these guys who are, uh, you know, of course the, the, the pet peeves is uh, when you hear them say, well, it's, well, it's way more competitive now than it ever was. And you think, you think ah, I'd like to come back and just do one race and, you know, get, get a top five or get a top three or whatever, or have it, have it be a really good one and win and then have them say, Oh wow. Well, he was still pretty good. And we're, we're just, you know, there. But yeah, it's definitely definitely lit, lights a fire to watch those races. It's been it's been really interesting to look back and watch these for through a new lens because the new generation doesn't know anything about the 2012 through 2015 sport, and the old generation is like reinvigorated by watching it. So we were thinking now that a lot of people are getting eyes on you who either didn't have eyes on you for a while or didn't know of the sport at all at that time, we'd like to reintroduce you to this sport. But not just like talk about your race, like the last the, the series they showed, but basically take you back to what started you on your path towards becoming, you know, one of the top obstacle racers on the planet. So start back at when you were the first makings of an athlete and work your way back up to present day. Um, are we going for three minutes or less, one minute or less or five minutes or less? Uh, under two hours. Under two hours, yeah. <laughs> keep it tight. <laughs> um, so, growing up, my my dad was a great athlete, but he was a he was a great like uh, hand hand hands eye hands athlete. He was a great golfer in, in college, a great baseball player. Um, my brothers like basketball and baseball. Um, I loved it. I w- I was very skilled, but very small, just like my son. You know, in high school, I was probably 70, 80, 90 pounds th- throughout my freshman year. Um, so I just, I just I, as much as I tried hard to do those sports, basketball, tennis, uh, uh, even football, I just wasn't doing well and, and wasn't having success. And so then I, I started doing cross-country skiing, which is a very popular sport in Alaska when I was 12, 13 years old. And I was, I was okay at it, but I was still small. I still lacked the power and strength. Um, when I was 14, I kind of dabbled with running a little bit, but I went out for the cross country team and I was probably like 40th or 50th on the team in Alaska. And that's, and Alaska doesn't have a great running community necessarily. Um, so freshman, sophomore year, I kind of did running to, to get, to, to get fitter to fill my off season for skiing. And then I came, come my junior year in high school, I started to do better at cross country skiing. I made the varsity. Um, I still hadn't done track yet. And when I, uh, uh, came came around in my junior senior year. I I started running a little bit more, and I started to like it. And my senior year, I, I still hadn't lettered in cross country running. Uh, I hadn't, and, and I started track for the first time. 
And in track, I that season, I kind of I ran like a 1042 mile. Like oh, that's pretty cool. And I I was kind of getting looked at a little bit to be on the varsity. And then as state rolled around, um, I ran a I think I ran a 1006, and I missed going to state. Again, this is Alaska, so missing going to state is almost pretty hard to do. Uh, and I, 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 had a, I had a sprint finish at Regions, and I tied the guy, but I could tell he won, but they did a photo finish, and everyone was waiting to see if I was going to state. And I, and I knew, I could just tell I hadn't beat the guy. And uh, and again, I ran a 1006, and I didn't go to state, but I got my letter in track, and I made you know I made varsity for the first time in, uh, in, in sports, essentially. In skiing, I'd done it a couple times. In my senior year, I was a pretty good skier. I was like 10th in the state. And, I, I, and, and so as college was getting, coming around, I entertained the idea of uh, being a, trying to be a skier and get good at that. And, you know, and in Alaska, we, we, we pump out Olympians out of Alaska at a, at a, at a massive ratio for the, the lack of population we have. Um, but it's, it's a huge sport here. Um, but again, I, uh, uh, you know, my interest had peaked towards running because as that fall came around, it was cross-country season. And... I'd, I'd been on the varsity and I was, I was going to get my letter that year and I was really excited. And at regions, I got uh, fifth for the team and a week later was state. And it, when I got fifth, it was weird. It kind of lit a fire under me. I was like, man, we, we, and, we, and we won regions. And it was the first time our team had had a chance to, to be in the running for state. And I remember the only chance we had to win state was for me, who was basically the anchor on the team to, to reverse it. And for some reason, something that week, I just said to myself, what if I was first on our team and we won state? And I was the reason, you know, not the only reason, but I, I made the difference from taking away 25 points and getting more like a, you know, top 10 t finish in state and being first for our team. And anyway, so that's, that happened. I, uh, I ran a good time at state. I was first for our team. Our team how, won state. How did that happen? Yeah. How did that happen? Um, I mean, basically, I had to shave about 38 seconds off my 5K time, and I was just in that process of just, you know, I, it's funny. It's kind of my mantra that stuck with me since then, and I, it took, it maybe took me then, and, and maybe 10 years later to learn uh, my mantra, which is really kind of a, a silly statement. But I always say to people, to win, you have to know how to win, but to know how to win, you've got to win. And that kind of sounds, it sounds like it doesn't make sense, but it does once you do it, because I've been in plenty of bike races throughout my career and Spartan races and running races. And like when you're back in seventh or 10th place or 14th and you're pushing hard and you're breathing hard and you're fighting for 12th and you sprint a little harder and maybe you get 11th or maybe you get 13th. You're like, Oh man, that was all I had. But when you, when you've tasted victory and you know that you're favored to win a race, you know, I'll blow blood vessels out in my eyes to win. I'll, I'll, I'll pass out 10 yards from the finish line. I'll cramp out a uh, hundred yards from a finish line because winning is maybe all that matters. And once you get a taste of that, uh, it's a whole nother gear. It's, it's not that speech that you sometimes get from a coach. That's like, give it your all. You got to do it. It's more like that killer instinct that all of us would have if a, if a, if, a, if we were getting attacked by, we ran into a bear in the forest and all of a sudden it's like, Holy crap, I'm going to die unless I fight. And not to be that extreme, like running or sports is that important, but the the feeling and the ability to reach into that adrenaline level, assuming you have the capabilities, you can actually pop out in a, a whole nother level of, uh, of, uh, of, I guess, of accomplishment. Or So I guess that's the answer to that question. I, I had that goal. I got that goal. And once I got it, what was funny is state was over with. We won. I was excited. Um, and that brought me into the 
end of the year and I was looking at college and I went down and I visited BYU and I was like, Hey, what does it take to run here? And they're like, I should be about like a 15, 35 K and we'll start looking at you. And I'm like, oh, I'm 17, but our courses are tough in Alaska. And I remember the coach was like, cool. I'll never see you again. I said, thanks. I'll see you in two weeks. You know, that was kind of like the, <laughs> and so that's that summer. I, I was just, for some reason I believed I could do it. And if I was running 25 miles a week, I, I, I literally like the day cross country ended, I was running, I started running two a days. I was running like 60 to 70 miles a week. And, and and the blessing and the lucky part is I didn't get injured and I was able just to train a lot. I started running. I'd run into my buddies who had graduated who were on this team with me and they're like, Hey, you done running? And I'm like, I know I'm running. Like I'm going to try to run in college. And they're like, uh, that's kind of okay, cool. Good luck. You know? And I remember I called my coach in high school and I was like, Hey, you mind calling my college coach and saying that I'm a super hard worker and I'm super motivated. And he's like, dude, you're not college running material. You're a great runner. You're a great, you try hard, but you, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't, I can't put my reputation on the line as a high school coach and call your college coach. And I was like, all right, screw you kind of thing. And that, it was funny that even made me more excited to keep trying. And it's a long, long story shorter or long story longer. I, I spent the next three months just with massive volume. And it was funny. That's uh, almost about a month after track season was over. After I'd run that 10.06, I went back and just from the mileage alone, I hadn't been running track and I ran a 9.48. I was like, okay, this is freaking, this works. And uh, you dropped a minute from the start of track till two months after track. In that yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I was, I, I was a sub, you know, I was running uh consistently in high school i had got i'd done like a 445 um but over that summer after four months of training i was starting to i was starting to see like sub 420 miles and i was starting to see uh i ran my first 942 mile and you know i I was just dabbling in everything i was doing half marathons and i was like winning local races i was running i ran a 115 and a half marathon i was like okay that's pretty cool and then as i continued to just to put it together so basically after track got done you were like throwing the middle finger to your everybody who said you couldn't and you were training like a maniac to make a D1 cross-country program. That was that was my goal and that was my dream. And that, that was the fun of it. What was funny is I was trying to get down to BYU to go to school and I, I was a pretty good student, uh, but I was contacting the coach like every two weeks. And I think this sounds bad, but I think the only reason he entertained my phone calls is he like loved Alaska. He was infatuated with hunting and he was, you know, he's in Utah and, everything Alaska, everything hunting was a, just blew his mind. And so like I was sending him pictures of moose and bear and, and I was, we, I, we were into hunting at the time. So I, I think I went down there at some point and he's like, oh, my dream's always to have some uh, moose antlers. And I'm like, All right, I'll send you some moose antlers. Let's do some reverse uh, recruiting here. I'll recruit myself <laughs> by paying you. You were hustling, man. You were hustling. Who was the coach at that time? Uh, Coach Cheryl James then went to Ed Eyestone, which is a more familiar name. But Cheryl had a huge history of uh, he just a good old fashioned seventy five year old coach and that old school training. And Matt, you know what? You know what I want to outline real quick before you continue is it's very interesting when we talk to successful endurance athletes. One, I do not feel like most successful endurance athletes today are late bloomers. For one, you hear a lot of the kids who are athletic but too small. And they end up choosing running and becoming good at it. Bracken, you were 105 pounds in high school. I was 110. Bear, you were, what, 90 pounds when you started? Like, we were all small and came around. And then, two, I feel like every successful athlete has this pivotal moment where they relearn how to hurt. When you had that state meet and you went from fifth place to first place on your team, you found a new way to hurt that day that you never had before. 
Is that correct? Like you really learned what suffering was that day. Absolutely. Cause that, cause that's the part, like, even if we went back a month prior to when I first had that success, I was running 12th on the team. I wasn't on varsity. And it was like one of those deals where maybe I had a pretty good race on JV. I got that chance to run with the varsity. But then when, like when I got out there, it was like, Oh wait, this pack, like I'm now in the pack of 20, but we're just moving faster. And I, you kind of forget that it's like hurts or that it's uncomfortable or whatever. And, and that, that was, that's kind of the difference. Cause when you do quote unquote, like if you think back of college years, when you had the chance to go to the Stanford relays and you, they always talk about like, Oh, you got to run with better people to run better. It's like, it's totally true. You guys know how it is. And anytime you play basketball with a total chump, you, you play crappy, but if you play with good people, you're all of a sudden making crisper passes. You're paying attention better. You're trying to like focus better and make everything count. Not at, not at a micromanagement level, but it just being around good people or, or good trainers or good, good everything, it just starts to run off on you if you're interested in letting it. Well, I think people, you know, people constantly think like, oh, I know what hurting is like. I'm going to go out and I'm going to race my best today and I'm going to, I'm going to really put the throttle down and they think they know what it's like to suffer and they think they know what it takes to succeed. And then they relearn it constantly. Oh, I've right. never heard like that before. No, that's your new standard. And then you right, go race right. your heart out and you collapse before the finish line. No, that's your new standard. And that's a lot of times how endurance athletes progress, like with their capabilities is more the mental side of understanding what it's like to suffer and sit in that pain. And that's what I feel like just listening to you. That's what sounds like to me is how you made the biggest jump that day. Yeah. And what's interesting, I, I, a caveat I would add to that is like uh, when I'm not prepared and I know I'm not fit, like let's just say I have a big race and let's say I'm 15 pounds overweight because I've been eating too much or drinking too much and I just haven't cared. And I've kind of got that, just that extra on me. And let's say I'm like, and many times I've talked to Yancey on the phone and he's like, you know, he's coached me a lot. He's just a great cheerleader. He's a great coach. And he'll be like, dude, you got this race. You got to get out there. And I'm thinking in my head, no, I don't. I'm not climbing well. I haven't been training well. I'm, I'm 10 pounds heavier than, and I'll give it my all and I'll be out there and whether it be a Spartan race or any, any event, if you're not prepared, you can't pull. It's, you know, you put like putting whipped cream on the top, top of a pile of poop. It's like, it's still not <laughs> going to make it that good after the first bite. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like we all have different levels of toughness, but we can only access as our, a level of tough, toughness compared to how fit we are. Like we're only as tough as we are fit. You can be as tough right. as you want, but if you're not fit to back it up, you can't actually access the rest of your toughness. Yeah. And that, and that, that's a whole nother subject of relativity. I mean, there, there's times you might run a four minute mile. I never have. And you'll be like, holy crap, this guy, oh, yeah, a four minute mile is the best in the world. It's like, yeah, you and 975 other people can run a four minute mile. You know, I, I would bet, I bet that's a pretty close statistic if you take worldwide. So you're, you might be the, you know, so there's, it's, it's always relative. You like might think you're amazing because you want a Spartan race, but then it's like, yeah, but so-and-so wasn't there and so-and-so. So that therefore you're not the best, but that's a whole nother discussion, which doesn't matter to me because I look at where you're at at the moment and what the race is and you know, what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, I think a, a really poignant example of, of, of that necessity to not only do well in the ring, if you will, but to get ready in, to be in the ring, you, you can relate to the boxing thing. Cause you've, you came up here and boxed with me. Yeah, I did. <laughs> That's a story in itself. We might have to dive into by the way. Yeah. Th th this is just a fast forward 25 years. But when, when I was 40, I found myself like the op opportunity to box and I was about 160 pounds and the, the, I was going to get in the ring and I had the choice to fight in that 160 to one, 
85 range or lose 10 pounds and be 149 and then I'd fight 150 and under. And what was interesting is when I started training and I did a little sparring and I got punched by a guy who weighed 180 versus uh, even the worst fighter in the world, the, the weakest guy on the planet who weighs 180, he, his blow hurts a lot more than a good fighter who weighs 140. It's a massive difference. But what I want, I don't want to diverge into boxing very deeply here, but just on, on a quick level, it was so scary to get in the ring and get punched. It hurt so bad. It was so dangerous that when I knew that event was coming up in two months, there was no problem cutting what I ate, watching what I ate, focusing on my training, being totally focused because when that day came two months in the future, I was going to be 149 or, or, I, or, or it was like death. And that's so that there again is a perfect example of in the ring, I had that motivation to not get hurt or to, tr to do well because obviously the punishment was absolute pain or, or injury. Um, but the months prior dialed in my training to a level that made me, you know, be able to call on, call upon that instinct to try really hard. So that caveat, that side story is just to show that, again, if you're not training and you're not working hard to think that you're going to like talk yourself into a good race, that that's kind of bogus also. It's kind of like in college kids are like, well, I'm not prepared for this test, but if I say a prayer, I might do really well. It's like, no, why don't you study really hard, eat really well, get a good night's sleep then say a prayer and you'll probably do pretty well. We don't know which one we're going to blame the success on, but it's probably going to be a combination of, 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 of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Like it's like your fitness level as that rises also does your ability to tap into your pain threshold. They do kind of go hand in hand. They're paralleled, aren't they? It's a good point. Absolutely. Who was the athlete who said the harder I work, the luckier I get? I don't know, but I like that. Quote. I remember if that was Larry Bird or whoever, but I mean, that's, that's it, right? Like you can rely on luck and it might strike from time to time. But if you put yourself real fit into the right situations, you, you appear to be a whole lot luckier more often. Well, if you go back to, I mean, I don't know if it's Larry Bird that say, said it, but Larry Bird did say and did do. I mean, he, if you follow his history, he had this story where he would, when he, you know, he's like 20 years old, he's like, I missed that 15 foot shot from the elbow at the end of that game. And then the story goes that he sat at that same spot and reshot it like, I don't know, let's just say a hundred times until he was making 70 out of a hundred from that spot. And he was like, okay, next game, I'm not going to miss this shot. And it is that, 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 that concept of <laughs> those who, you know, put in the extra effort. I mean, the more you do what you're trying to be good at, the better you're going to be good at what you're going to do. And I, I've seen that so many times as I've done, I, I've kind of been a pretty good chameleon of, uh, different sports that I've tried and I've gone all in on them. And the times that I've gone all in, it's pretty uncanny how well uh, my body, or I'd say anybody's body or training can adjust to that sport. And just like I did when I became a mountain runner, I didn't like ski and run and play basketball. I just, you know, as you, the story goes, I got on that incline treadmill and I did like massive volume. I did so much volume. People thought I was insane. I was I was climbing and I, and I wasn't doing mountains because I couldn't put in uh, 50,000 vertical feet in the mountains. Because if you go up 50,000, you got to run down 50,000 and 50,000 vertical downhill is really hard on your knees. And so that's what I found. I just went straight all in on the, on the incline treadmill. And all of a sudden I was a, a great mountain runner after just a, a mere two years. But it, I say that sarcastically because it did take the time and the effort and the volume to do that. Uh, to, just to find that that sport. 
So you found this out that summer of your after your senior year coming into BYU. You wined and dined your coach with antlers and Alaskan mysticism, and now you're on campus. So what happened then? So freshman year, I would go to the we, we had we had a good the team was good. BYU is a good team. It's had Olympians uh, that year. There was a couple Olympians that that were on the team. Uh, everyone I met, I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. I'm from Alaska. I, oh, what's your PR? Oh, I run a four uh, four nineteen mile. They're like, oh, that's really cute. Like, you're 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 male though, right? <laughs> it was funny though. I remember meeting those guys, like going on those runs with them, and you know, hey, I'm Mister Four Hundred Eight. Hey, I'm Mister Four Hundred Four. Hey, I was the state champion in California. I'm like, the crap. Like, oh, have you ever broke sixteen to five k? The guy's like, yeah, no, like I've run a fourteen oh oh nine. You're just like, well, that sucks. But Bear, did they did they let you just did the coach after all your schmoozing and romancing him? Did he let you walk on? Is that what I'm understanding? Your efforts paid off. The schmoozing allowed me to get a locker and two pairs of shoes, and allowed me to get on that bus every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to go do the 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 the, the varsity workouts. And and those and it, the team had like 30 people that could be there, but about 12 of them weren't allowed to be like in the right place, have a locker, feel like they're part of it. Um, I think I was welcomed by the better guys because I had a good attitude and I, and I trained my ass off. And so if, if anything at practice, if it, at, at practice, I was, I was the one racing and they were the ones doing a practice. So when we'd go into the mountains and run up Hobble Creek and it'd be like a 10 mile run at like six to 7% grade up a road, I'd finish that workout with those guys. Like maybe I'd finish in the top three or four and I'd be like, coach, you think maybe I could travel this week? And he's like, well, see, Matt, you're the, you, you raced. Those guys were like at like, you know, level four, you were like at race pace. And that, that whole freshman year was frustrating because I did get a couple chances to run some varsity races for BYU my freshman year. And I ran like, we were running the 8K and the good guys were running sub 25 and I'd pop out like a 2750 or something and just be like, holy crap, I got 98th place out of 120 people. Mm-hmm. I got beat by some of the junior colleges that were there. And, and that was kind of rinse and repeat for my full year. Um, accelerating the story a little bit. I then I had a fun year. I did well in school academically. Um, I was welcome to come back to the team. I went on a church mission for two years and I went to, and when I left on my mission, I was 129 pounds. And it, well, let's just say my freshman season, I, I, I was average at best. I was definitely like a D2, D3 runner. I, I certainly hadn't put down any numbers that, you know, made them excited for me to come back. What are you trying to say about D3 runners, Matt? Are you trying to beg on us D3 runners over here? I'm saying individually, there's they could be better than D1, but I'm saying collectively, the, <laughs> the, 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 the generality is there might be less good people. I'm just um, no, I know for sure. Just in the same token, in all fairness, there's plenty of D1 schools that get dominated by the smaller schools too. True, true. Um, Continue, sorry. So came back from my mission. While I was on my mission, I was more interested in church stuff. I was more interested in academics, but I, I, we, we couldn't run really. It was too hard to run. It didn't work out. And I came off my mission. I was 175 pounds and I was, I was, I was fat. I, I, I was, I was 40 pounds overweight for sure. And I remember I went back to BYU and I saw my coach and I wasn't excited to go back to college. I was, I was thinking about, I was kind of working three or four jobs back home that summer. I was kind of like, you know, I, I'm not going to run anymore. I started getting, I started kind of playing basketball with my buddies and I was, uh, I was kind of interested in martial arts and I was kind of doing just kind of random things. And I went down to BYU to say hi to my family and I saw my coach and he saw me. He's like, 
dude, what are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm just having fun. You know, just getting big and doing a lot of body lift, bodybuilding and getting stronger. And he's like, hey, I'm going to say this one time. This was Coach James. He's like, you need to get back to college. I'm like, ah, yeah, I'm working jobs. I don't think I need to. He's like, stop. You're coming back in four months. The season starts in the fall. Here's your training plan. Get back in shape. And I remember I was standing, I was standing on the track at BYU at that time. And I, I was like mad at first. I was like, dude, I'm 40 pounds overweight. But I, I mean, I knew I was heavy, but I, I mean, I literally was heavy. <laughs> and he, he's like, I'll see you in four months. You're going to do the, like the, it was, it was kind of like that moment in Rudy or, or karate kid where you like, they have like the 20 minutes of training and all of a sudden the guy comes back fit. That, that was kind of like what I was being told by the coach. So he gives me this plan. It was like 60 to 80 miles a week. It was, it was what, what his runners were running at the time. And I went home and for a joke, I decided that weekend, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do the half marathon. This was a half marathon. I'd run a 111 in two years prior. And I, I decided I was going to dribble a basketball the whole way. And <laughs> Sounds familiar. The, the race started out and I was one mile into it. And people around me were like, dude, what are you, get out of our way. Like, what are you freaking doing? Dribbling a ball. And, you know, there's a crowd of a couple thousand people running the race. And I'm kind of like moving along and I'm running like 10 minute mile pace and I'm dribbling the ball. And my right, my arms were so tired from dribbling. It was crazy just that how that could turn into like to be that hard. As you know, Bracken, I think you did a mile with a basketball. It's yeah, really tough. I give up the ball about two miles into this mar- half marathon, and I get to about mile four, and I'm I'm way back, and I get to mile six, and I'm like, uh, I need to drop out. But now I'm like six miles in the middle of nowhere because there's an out and back, and there was no cars out there, and I was trying to get a ride to like get back. And so then I'm walking, and I'm, I'm getting blisters on my feet, and I'm going slow, and then I tried to jog a little bit, and I'd run, then I'd jog. I did that half marathon. I think my, I, I finally got back. I did it in like two hours and 20 minutes. And I was just like, holy crap, I am fat and out of shape. And uh, anyway, so to make this story not, not take forever, that, that, that didn't discourage me. Because it was funny as I got home and I weighed myself and I'd lost 13 pounds in like water weight. Just like it was all water weight, but I was 13 pounds lighter. I was like 165 or something. And I was like, holy cow, that's kind of cool. And the next day I, I ran three miles in the morning. I ran five miles that evening. And I just, I kept doing that until I could run. And I was all of a sudden within about a month and a half, I was like, the weight was coming off so fast. Um, I went down to BYU and I was, I was pretty much ready to roll. I was bigger though. I was like 150, 148. I was a bigger guy and enter the steeplechase. My coach said, you know, what might be good for you. You're not light enough to run a fast. I was running about a 1535K by then, but I still wasn't quick enough. I was running a, uh, I'd run a four minute. 1500 so that's about a 416 417 mile uh but i wasn't i wasn't good enough to travel on the track team and that was cross-country season as we're getting into track he said why don't you try out for the steeplechase and i was like okay how do i be good at the steeplechase i'm not fast enough to be a 1500 runner i'm not fast enough to be a 5k runner but i was i was strong enough to to handle the barriers of a steeplechase so what i did is I, I thought I'm going to have the best hurdle form possible. I can't improve my speed, but I can definitely get super limber and study hurdling. And so I did that. I put in, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd sit there in the hurdler stretch for 15 to 20 minutes every evening while I'd read a book for studying. I just sit there and do that. I do that in the morning. I do that at night and I got super limber and I, I got to the point where I was hurdling. I looked like, a, I looked like a hurdler. And so when the steeplechase, when we started training for that, 
uh, a month or two later, I was just, I was just really good at hurdle form. And so it didn't phase me at all to like go over the barriers. And what was ironic is that's what kind of blows up people who aren't strong enough in the steeplechase. Um, that story, just to sum it quickly, sum it up quickly by that my first steeplechase, they, they, they get, they took a chance and they let me travel to San Luis Obispo. And I ran a, uh, I ran a nine twenty seven. And that was, wasn't great for college, but my coach's minds were blown because it was good enough to make, I was number 927 two. 927 debut is, that was my debut. And, and it was cool because I got sixth place in the race out of 14 people. The next, next week I ran a 924 nine, uh, and then I was kind of like traveling and all of a sudden I was on the team and all of a sudden I was a part of BYU and I lettered the next three years. I got it down to, to uh, a 906. Um, it's moving. But it was good enough that like I was now running a decent 3,000 meter time. I was able to go to the track meets. I could run a 15, 15, 25 was kind of my best 5K in college. But, it, but I, could, I could run the steeple. Then I could go get like 10th place in the 5K. And I was, I was they, they traveled me. I lettered and I, uh, I had a good time in college. You know? And it was because of the steeplechase. It was because of that, that event fit me very well. Um, and I was able to score points for the team and, and had a fun, fun career as a steeplechaser. So did you, so you said you, you kind of left, you were, you were going down um, like mission trip route and you were working on your faith. And then you, you realized that running was part of you too. And so you decided to put that on hold and, and focus more on your running career. Is that how I'm understanding it? Cause it sounded like you were going one route and then you kind of coach changed your mind a little bit and you decided to go down the fitness route. Is that, is that right? Did you leave everything else behind and just go all in on the running then? at the time yeah but i think the sentimental part is is i think what my coach was saying is when he saw me fat he wasn't saying we need you to be a runner he was saying you need to get your crap together because i was i wasn't focused on a lot of things i wasn't focused on necessarily spirituality i wasn't focused on my physicality i wasn't focused on my education i and and, then socially i was probably somewhere along depressed at that time because i i mean i don't know not getting a lot of I wasn't hanging with the people I wanted to hang with. Let's put it that way at my, at that weight, I was in a new class. I didn't, you know, it just kind of wasn't fun. I wasn't doing very well. So his message to me wasn't come back and be a good runner. His, his message was get focused and it's probably going to bleed onto all, all areas of your life. So the sentimental part is I think I'm not saying that someone has to become a runner all in or a, a, a pianist all in or a scholastic. I'm just saying that, Generally, if you start focusing on one thing, it's going to bleed onto other parts of your life. And next thing, everything, everything, everything did come together for me pretty well because I did end up graduating from college with a good degree from a good school, and I was able to meet neat people, and I was able to get a good job after college. And I, and and that work ethic and that success, uh, if we will, going back to learning how to win. Once I tasted that, it started to 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 to, to go on every part of my life. It's interesting that you didn't belong there, and you just willed yourself there. And then once you got there, you found a, a way to get onto the team. And then suddenly it didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter if you're supposed to be there or not. You got the same thing out of it that anyone who was on full ride got out of it. Yeah. And it brings me fast forward. I've seen this now. It, since then, I've been a coach. I've been a successful athlete in different sports. Um, I see it so much because I see some, I almost get nervous about those athletes who are like 14, 15 years old and they just come out and they naturally run a, maybe she runs like a five minute mile and all of a sudden everyone loves her as a freshman, sophomore and oh my gosh, she's winning all the junior high races. And that, that, that girl quits when she's a junior and never runs again. And you see her when she's 30 and she's 
700 pounds and hasn't run since. And you're like, what happened? Like, I don't know. It was just too easy. It was too, it was too fun. And I, and I wasn't winning anymore. And all of a sudden when I became a senior, I didn't want to run that much. And I had to run that much and I didn't want to. And I see that with cross country ski people who go to the Olympics when they're 23, 24 years old. And then I'll run into these dudes when they're like 28. And I'm like, so what are you doing now? I was like, Oh, I retired when I was 27. You retired when you're 27. I, 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 I see this like, even like, uh, this is a, a name dropping example, but like Ryan Dungey, I had the chance to work with him and be friends with him. He's a world-class motocross and at the at top of his game, he was 28 years old. And he's like, okay, I've made enough money with Red Bull and with being a professional motocross rider. And he retired, I think at 28. And I look back at that and think, I hope he's doing well now, but it's, it's, it's mind blowing. If we have success too early, how it's hard to be happy with success that may not be as great. Cause if you're an Olympian when you're 22, you, it might be all downhill from there. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, though, because when all you do is win and you're already at the top, there's only one way to go. And that is unfortunately down. But when you're constantly scrapping and climbing and trying to claw your way up to the top, talk about a fire under your ass constantly. That is the motivated person who's going to keep doing this far into their future. And I feel like that was sort of how it worked for you. Um, and, and for people who don't know necessarily get you up to speed. So Matt, you were, um, you were ranked first in the world uh, a number of seasons for Spartan Race. You were the man. Um, and I want to know, a lot of these people just that are newer to the sport, you know, don't, don't know the OGs and you're one of the best, right? And so how did the transition go after college and all of that? When did you first find Spartan and what was that like for you? Because I know when you found the sport, you came out hot. Um, so this will be the Reader's Digest version between college and Spartan, but Sure. Yeah. After college, I decided to run marathons. I did about four or five. I, I got introduced to the world of injuries and I thought this isn't fun to go smash my shins and my, my arch of my feet. And I didn't, I was too heavy to be a marathon runner. So then I, I, I got on a mountain bike and all of a sudden I started riding bikes. And then all of a sudden I thought maybe this is my sport. And I hit cycling super hard in a very similar fashion where I got addicted to the, in, the, the inside trainer. I did it religiously and I became a good biker and I, I dabbled in the professional ranks in cycling, um, where I was able to be a cat one rider and I was able to travel across the country and a little bit around the world. And, and I had a lot of success cycling. Um, then I kind of got, I was about 35 and I reached basically the peak of cycling and I was going to turn into a master cyclist and I didn't really want to do that. And I wasn't winning races in that anymore. And so then that segment segued me into the, to my mountain running and mountain running, uh, there's a huge event in Alaska called Mount Marathon. It's three miles long. It goes straight uphill and straight downhill. It has one of the, it's probably one of the greatest viewerships of any, uh, endurance sporting event in the world. Um, there's TVs, there's helicopters, there's sponsorships. It's a big race. Um, the big, the best runners in the world have come and done it. And the best world runners in the world have, have won it and tried to win it. Um, it took me five years to figure out how to win that race. But in 2012, I won Mount Marathon and I, I, ran, I won it with a fast time. I was the fourth fastest in the history and I was dangerously close to setting the record. And so for 2012 season, going into 13, I was all in for Mount Marathon. I wanted to set the record and I spent the year on the incline treadmill. I was just racking out massive mileage. I was lean. I was fit. And there was another runner who wanted the record also. And so there was a story and we were going head to head, going into the record. July 4th came around, 2013. It was record or nothing. 
and I blew up at like mile one. I fell apart. I fell into sixth or seventh place. I watched the guy who was going for the record to beat me go up the mountain in front. He went ahead and set the record. I went ahead and got like 11th or 12th that year. And I finished that race in July and I, and I, I was bummed. And I was like, this sucks. I just spent so much effort trying to do it. And just randomly, about a month or two later, I, I'd been roofing. I'd been playing basketball. I'd been uh, practicing my vertical leap. I was just having fun doing fun things. I was trying to like, I, I was trying to see if I could dunk a basketball and I was getting where I could like grab the rim. And so then I was trying, I, you know, just having fun. But I, I, and I was still fit though. I was still mountain fit, fit and I was ready to roll. And uh, my brother-in-law, he was a military guy. He called for, from Virginia and he's like, dude, you got to come try this Spartan thing. I was like, what's that? He's like, it's in two weeks. It's in Virginia. It's uh it's like there's climbing, there's like obstacles. It's a really cool thing. So I signed up for the Spartan race. I went down there, um, got on the starting line, didn't know anything about it. And uh, the race started. And I remember I was standing next to David Megida and Hobie Call. And Hobie was, uh, is obviously a legend in the sport. And we started going up and over and overs and throughs and under barbed wire and uh, I was in about seventh or eighth place, but as we started climbing into a, a tough section, I found myself in third be behind David Megida, and I was pretty comfortable climbing. I, I felt easy, and I all of a sudden started dropping him, and we're kind of bushwhacking through the woods, and it was a real rugged course. If anyone remembers the Virgin Virginia course, it's a lot of climbing, and it's you know, it's it, it was rugged, and uh, we got to the the spear throw. Let's see, and I and I think I mean I, I made it. It was it was in the woods. I made the spear throw. I was like, oh, that's cool. And I, I hadn't messed up on an obstacle yet, but I wasn't efficient. And we went on a really precarious technical downhill section. And all of a sudden, Hobie was like there and I was catching him. And I caught up to him. I'm like, hey, how you doing? He's like, uh, 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 uh. he was surprised. He's like, who are you? I'm like, oh, I'm, from, I'm Matt from Alaska. What's your name? He's like, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, okay. So then another few minutes went by. And I'm, I'm with him still. I'm, I'm kind of talking. I felt pretty comfortable. And, and not to say that in a braggadocio sort of way, but I was pretty fit for climbing and it wasn't, I wasn't tired. We're carrying the logs. We went to the barbed wire crawl and he's, he got down, he's rolling through it, and it was long barbed wire. And I came up out of it. I'm trying to roll and crawl and I was getting dizzy. And I, he had at least 40 seconds on me after that. We're about seven miles into this. Uh, we had about two and a half miles to go. And I was about a minute down. And what the advantage I had is I was watching him do obstacles. So I was trying to copy how to do them and I still hadn't failed one yet. Um, so I wasn't losing massive time, but I was losing time during the obstacles. And we got into this section where we had to carry a log for a good, uh, probably a good 10 minutes on our back. And it was on a really steep climb. And I caught up to him and he looks over at me and he's like, oh, hey, wait, where are you from again? Like, Alaska and I'm a climber. This is a great thing. This is fun. And he's like, I could tell he was, he wasn't excited to have me there next to him, staying with him. And he, I remember he looks over and he, he says to me, uh, man, my, my, my calves are cramping. And I was like, okay. And like, who tells a person that in the middle of a race, you know? And so I thought I'd put Only a Hobie, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I put a surge on and all of a sudden I had the lead and then I put the log down and we went into just at, at Virginia, it finishes with just a long, steady climb. And I looked back and he was gone. He was way back behind me. And I, I remember we came up the top of that climb um, and it was a good old fashioned rope climb. We used to have to jump into the water and I was like, oh, this is tough. And my hands were wet and I climbed in the water and I got up the rope. I rung the bell and I came up around the top and went across the traverse wall and 
Then I went into the gladiators and they had their, their, their little back in the day when they used to beat you at the end of it, when they had the gladiators you had to run through. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I came across the fire and I finished. And I remember the first person there was Robert Coble. And he was like, just, just like so excited. And he's like, Oh, I, who are you? Like, well, oh my gosh. Like, do you know who you beat? Do you know what you just did? And I'm like, Oh, no, that was really cool. Thanks. He's like, I, I, di- I didn't know that there, I think that the prize money for that race was uh, easily $2,000 or $3,000. And I was like, Holy crap. And I remember Robert said, he immediately had me on the phone with Joe DeSena and Joe was like, so excited that I'd beaten Hobie. And that's a, that's a whole nother story that I don't necessarily have to get into, but, but, but Joe like wanted me to be a part of what he was doing. He was excited. I think also that, that I was 40, uh, 40 years old at the time. And I think my demographic was obviously a good demographic for. You who was 40 in Virginia? Yeah. I was 40 years old. Crazy. But how old are you now? 46. 46. So six. Okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> that was kind of the beginning of it. And so I, I, Joe was like, Hey, I want you to go to every race we have. I'm like, dude, I'm like, I got like a life. I, I don't have money to afford that. And he's like, no, no, we'll pay for you to go anywhere you want to go. And I'm like, this is freaking weird. What is going on? And Robert was back over talking to me and he's like, we want to pay you to be on the team and we're going to have sponsorships and it, we're up and coming. And we're going to the Olympics and, and the world championships is in two weeks. And I was just like, like just, it was just like having a good time. I was like calling people. I was like, this, 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 this thing's like a really big deal. I had no idea what this was. And I'd beat Hobie by like, I think six minutes. And, uh, you know, that kind of the rest was history. It segued into, I, the, two weeks from that, I had a, a mountain race I was doing in Alaska and I canceled it. And, uh, I went down to Vermont and that was the first, uh, that was the first NBC televised race, I think. And they, wind and dined me, if you will, to get me there. They paid for me to go down. They paid for all my expenses. And it, it was really like, this is crazy fun. Um, then just not to talk too long about that, but Vermont started out, it was with a big climb. Joe had called every elite athlete he could think of. He had called the best runners in the world. He'd called. That was the craziest field I've ever been a part of. Yeah. I mean, we had like legends of every sport were there we had a two-time new york marathon winner we had olympians we had uh world ring triathletes like anyone he could find we had the best steep one of the best steeple chasers in the country was there if you remember he was running like mm-hmm. a <laughs> eight minute steeple was there Famagetti, right yeah and mm-hmm. what, what's the mexican's name who's the one of the best runners in the history herman silva was there mm-hmm. the race started out with a two-mile climb and i was like well, I better prove how good of a climber I was. And I just, I went out so hard and I was pushing and I, I was alone with, uh, I think I was climbing with, I don't know. I, I crested the top of that thing. We went to that, we had to memorize, you go to those memorization stations at the top. And I was like, what is this? And I remember spending so much time trying to figure out how the number thing worked and which number you're supposed to memorize. And I descended through that. Um, but I had a good old fashioned solid lead on the field going through the spear throw. I made it. Um, I thought I was going to win easily. I mean, it, not again, not to, to sound like I'm bragging, but I was about five, six miles in that race. We got to that. Remember the bridge where we had to cross, go into the water and cross that. Swim uh, out, climb up, swing across, swim out. Yeah. I think less than five, less than five people made that obstacle. And, 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 and I think what happened to a lot of people, it happened to me. I uh, failed the obstacle. I was in the water. I was cold. And when I started doing my burpees, I was so cold. And I was, I started cramping in my calves and my hamstrings and like they were seizing up. I couldn't do my burpees. So then I'm like taking forever. 
And now I'm in, I remember, I don't remember who, cause I didn't know the names back then, but so I was in second place, then third place and fourth place. And next thing I know, I'm like, someone's telling me to like walk it off. And I got the burpees done. And then I'm like walked another hundred yards. I lay down on the ground again and I couldn't move and I'm cramping again. And I'm starting to get like hyperthermic cause now I'm freezing from not moving and it was chilly. And, uh, it's funny. I remember the TV crew was there and they're like all over the top of me and, it, and they had the, they had the medic there and they're like, what, what do you want to do? Do you want to drop out? And I remember someone saying, well, if, if you, if you touch him, he's disqualified. And I think it was, I remember Joel Getty. Do you remember him? Mm-hmm. He was there kind of doing a media thing and he's like, get in the sun, get in the sun. It'll warm you up. And I remember I scooted over in the sun and uh, anyway, the, what happened there was I decided to keep going I made it into the forest. It was really hard. I think I ended up getting 15th or 16th place. I finished 15, 20 minutes back behind the field. And I thought, well, that sucks so much for that career. And uh, where I got lucky or, you know, when you talk about luck or uh, something I didn't deserve is on NBC, they featured me massively in that race. Like, oh my gosh, the cramping and the lead he had and what a great story. And look at this old guy and he survived. (laughs) Like, the, the massive part of that coverage was like, uh, I, I remember Joe, Joe kept referring to me as the bear from Alaska. And I was like, call me whatever you want. And he's like, oh, no, no, you're the bear. And he was really pushing that hard. And next thing I know, I was the bear and I got the TV coverage was good. And I got lots of coverage and I got popular really quickly. And I started doing Spartan races about every, at least every two a month, I was traveling all over the world. I, I went to every one of them. I was going to every one of them on Spartan's dime. And that's, that's when I started meeting. Um, he started kind of putting that mini team together where he had Hunter and I and Amelia. And next thing you know, we were involved with Reebok and we were getting a salary and we were getting clothes and shoes. And I'm thinking somebody pinch me because this isn't real. I've been a professional runner and cyclist and mountain runner. And I, no one ever gave me a dime for doing that. And here I'm like getting free trips and getting paid. And, you know, so then that's kind of brings us full circle there. Matt, this is a conversation we've been having recently. Um, I feel like it's come up a lot on previous podcasts. Um, you're telling us that your first Spartan race was when you were 40 years old, correct? Uh, either 39 and a half or 40, but yeah. Well, there's a lot of us that are getting older in this sport and wondering, like, do we still have it or can we still be the best in the sport? Bracken right now is going through two knee surgeries. and Bracken, what are you, 31 or 32? 32. 32 and he's feeling the pressure of time and just to hear that like i'm la i'm 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 laughing because you have no idea what you have have available to you at your correct uh, your physiology physiology can't even talk physiology physiology (laughs) it it it, what we have the ability to do now do you remember i think it was uda pipic you remember that ultra runner back in the day She's old. She's like probably 700 years old now, but she was the runner that I followed when I was young. And I remember her saying in a quote, she said, as I, she was a 5k great and she was a 10k great, like world-class. And she kept getting older and she kept saying, the older I get, I just keep going, doing longer races. And all of a sudden I keep doing, I'm still, I keep staying the best Mm. into ultra marathons. But the, the, the point of that is it's uncanny I don't know if kids don't want to train a long time or if their bodies aren't mature enough or their minds aren't mature enough, but I have the ability to go out. If you, if you called me today and said, Hey, do you want to go do like a four hour hike? I'd be like, uh, yeah, let's do it. And then you're like, you know what? Let's just make it eight hours. We're going to go over those three peaks. Well, if I had food and water, 
my body can handle it now. And when I was 20, it's like, I couldn't go on 20 milers. I, it was so hard. You'd have like those, a couple 20 milers before your big marathon. And then it was like such a big deal to go that long. It's it, so what my point is, we can do massive amounts of volume as we get older. And uh, as long as you do it in a responsible, non-injury prone way, we, we can do the type of training that develops the, the mitochondria and, and our body's ability to utilize oxygen. The more you do it, the more you tap into uh, abilities that, that you never could have unless you do that type of volume. If you were 39 or 40 when you found the sport, I agree. You can perform. I mean, look at the history of our, our world champs. Half of them have been 38 or older. Do you wonder? I thought you were younger when you found the sport than 39 or 40. Do you, do you ever wonder or wish you found it earlier? Or are you happy with the progression of time there? I think the progression of time is and the, the failures and successes is something that, that inspires me a lot. So typically, you know, even with Spartan, I, I didn't quit Spartan because I didn't like it anymore. I quit it because I wasn't winning. And that, that sounds uh, bad to say it that way. But it's the same reason I quit cycling. And, and again, it doesn't mean I'm not coming back to cycling or it doesn't mean I don't go back to cross-country skiing or it doesn't mean I go, don't start running marathons again or do Spartan race this year. It just means that what motivates me is to be bad at something and then figure out a way to get good at it. And then when I reach a point where I don't feel like I can progress any further, I start to get a little bored. And it's not a poopy pants thing. It's more of like a, hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to try something else and see if I can master something else. And that is why I delved into the world of boxing and into, into the world of, uh, you know, mountain running and then Spartan racing and whether I'll get back into Spartan racing, like I'm game. It's just a matter of being motivated to try something new, but I want to keep seeing progression. And that's what motivates me to keep trying as hard as I need to try to keep, you know, I guess just trying that hard, if you will. No, I get that. And and I think you and I, we've connected over the years because we have pretty similar makeups. Like we are, there are people who are driven by competition and there are people who dr are driven by winning and it being better at competition. Right. And you and I are both that person where we really love competing, but we don't like, we don't love losing enough to like competing poorly. And people like to say, you've got to love what you do. You got to love the process. Right. But if your process is improvement, and you're not getting that, then like that's just your reality. You can't enjoy being not successful. And, and that's the part you have to throw the caveat into is because there's thousands of people who may not have the genetic makeup or the skill set or the talent to win. But that's where I go, went back earlier to talk about the, the theory of relativity. It's like winning is very, very it's just very relative. Like I, I can win a big ski race in Alaska and be like, holy crap. People are like, oh my gosh, you won that race. That just means that the, 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 the U.S. ski team guys were down ski racing in the Olympics or they were down at the, the world skiing and the, the junior masters were gone. And the, the and, and when they come back, all of a sudden I get 14th the next week. People are like, oh, what's wrong? Like, well, 13 guys were missing when I won. So the, the right. reason I say that is just not to try to sound like I'm like, oh, everyone's a winner, but we're winning at a, de a different level and that's what we have to be okay with. And so with Spartan racing, when – I got to like, I, you know, and in all honesty, I probably put on 15 pounds of fat slash muscle mass, whatever we want to call it. I was too heavy to be a good climber. So when I came out to make my little comeback in Spartan uh, a year and a half ago and to get 12th place, I was like, uh, not fun because I knew I could win. I knew I could do better, but I wasn't in a position to get myself dialed in to put in the work. 
to get to the point where I could win again. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the kind of the moral of the story is it's like, it's not like our only goal is to win, but our, the goal of progression is super important for me. And, you know, as soon as I don't see myself improving, I typically switch sports and just try something new. Cause I, 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 I've exhausted all the options to be a, to be the best cyclist I can be. And I exhausted all the options to be the best Spartan racer I could be mountain running. Same thing. I went back last year. I thought, I'll make a little mini comeback for Mount Marathon. I trained hard. My intervals were good. My time trials were good. I happened to be sick, but I, I didn't have a good race. I, I, in fact, last year I, did, I was about part way into the race and I, I was feeling crappy and I just dropped out. And I was like, people like, how could you drop out of a race? It's like, I don't know. It's hard to explain. I don't have to explain it to you though. I just didn't have it and I didn't feel it. And I didn't want to feel it. I, I didn't want to be there. Um, but then, you know, this last year I spent massive amounts of training and money and personal trainers and I got good at cross country skiing and that was my pursuit for this year. Um, but I, that's the thing. It's just that progression and seeing that you can improve. And uh, I think that's the really important uh, takeaway here. Yeah. Well, once you've, once you've tasted a certain level, nothing's satisfying below that level anymore. And so when cross country skiing is new to you, like 14th is exciting. And then the next race, you're sitting there tied for 12th. You're like, I'm going to get 11th. That's exciting. But when you come out to Spartan and you win your first race and beat the world champ and you get signed by Reebok and you make so many podiums and win so many races, now competing for 12th isn't exciting because it was a regression. Right, for sure. When you're not progressing, yeah, I, I, don't, see, I don't see shame in switching to a new sport to find a new passion as long as we're all honest about what we're doing. Like if some people are out there for the excitement of being on course, that's great for you. And if other people are out there because they're driven by being better than they were in the past, that's great for you too. But I think honesty is the important part with people that it's not an umbrella that everyone fits under. It's not a, we all have to just like sing Kumbaya and love training mm -hmm. and we don't all have to be cutthroat to win. It's your, your DNA, your makeup is your makeup and embrace it and ride it until you can't. Yeah, no, I, I see, uh, in all the sports I've ever done, some of the the people when I came into these sports, they're still doing it. I, I, like I know mountain runners that used to, that kind of took me under their wing and taught me how to mountain run and how, you know, where to go. And I still, I ran with a guy yesterday. He's 63 years old, probably one of the top, he's, he, he's still an elite mountain runner because he does it so much. He's never stopped doing it. That's all he does. It, since he's been a mountain runner, I've done six different sports and I'm back to it and doing it now again. And it's like, he's a mountain runner for life and that's okay. He's never the best, but he's always been solid. He's freaking rock hard dude. He eats well. He's, he's strong. I know cyclists that 20 years ago when I first came into the sport, they're still cycling. I mean, even Lance Armstrong's still cycling. He's not, you know, he's good still, but he's not anywhere near the level he was, but he's 48 now, but he still cycles. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But for me, it's like, I, I put my bike away and I, I didn't get another bike until last year. I didn't ride a bike for, I just didn't want to, I didn't care. I didn't want to do it. it, it, it cycling wasn't my life. Um, let's just say maybe seeking out goals was my life or progression was my life or like new challenges was what's interesting to me. I mean, just to throw that out there to prove it, I spent over... 2000 hours getting good at ping pong. Like that was a sport that I pursued hard. <laughs> like that had nothing to do with aerobic capacity or anything. I bought a ping pong ball machine and I had it set up in my basement. I'd go to tournaments. I'd play with the best of the best. I freaking loved it. And I loved it because it was like, 
fun playing against anyway that, that's just an example though and i don't know maybe my pursuit could be uh playing an instrument or or, or you know whatever i mean and, and i do have a diverse interest in just random hobbies like i love flying rc airplanes i've i've spent hours on that and i've spent money on that and uh it, my, my point is it's just fun to kind of get new things and then put in the effort it takes to like respect the sport and respect the or the hobby and, and get to a level where people like kind of take you under their wing and say, wow, this guy really cares. And that, that's, what's fun for me. Matt, you don't, uh, you don't just dip one toe in the water, do you? You dive in. Uh, I, I would say almost every time I have a, definitely a history and a lifestyle of mm -hmm. that and everything I've ever done. Successful people do that. I, uh, I want to circle back to um, something you said earlier in this interview and you said, it, it maybe it's it, it gets under your skin a little bit when people compare, uh, you know, Matt Novakovic of old to the new crew of athletes and how the competition is is more fierce these days. And we like to reference that, too, here. Um, we're still racing. Does any part of you you talk about pursuing a new venture would when working towards something new? Would Spartan race now coming back and really diving in feel like a new something to prove to you or is that have you burned that match and that's all worn out for you now? um no it's it's not at all i last year it was kind of my year where i was i was skiing a lot but i got an invite to come to a a spartan race in whistler and they wanted to kind of make a little comeback for me and at the time i was doing the, the red bull challenge that was kind of my thing last year and I, I, d I did a bunch of those races i did the world championship of those red bull 400s and uh they're really cool though. They're like quick and painful. They only take four or five minutes and the race is over, but they have a couple heats. So they, you have to like, it's their strategy involved and it, it's sprints and it's power. So you don't have to be a fast mountain runner, but you have to have a lot of power. So I, I liked it and it fit me well. Plus I was a little heavier because I was skiing a lot. So I had a lot of upper body mass. And uh, anyway, so, so my point is I was fit enough and I thought I was fit enough. So I, for about three weeks prior to that, uh, Whistler race. I did did a bunch of burpees. I made sure my grip strength was good, and I went down to that race. And uh, I, I I didn't put in the the, the effort it, it would take to make a real comeback. And and again, just just being heavy, I can't climb fast. And that race had a lot of climbing, and I climbed mediocre. And I don't know what I finished tenth or twelfth. And then I did the Masters race the next day, and I got beat by a, a Masters runner. And I was like, what the crap? I'm not getting beat by Masters, and I'm a Master I'm freaking old, you know. Um, so if I if and when I come back, I mean even there's talk of Palmerton happening. I've been talking to Joe a little bit about that, and it's like, tell me it's happening for sure, and I'll freaking lose 15 pounds in the next two weeks, and I'll come down ready. But I'm not going to come down and not be ready because it's not because I have to come down. I, I want to come down prepared and respect the sport for the respect that it deserves, and uh, that's my take on that. No, no, what I think is. Because you've dabbled with so many other sports and put a lot of your energy, you know, physical and emotional energy and other things. I think to come back in this sport, knowing that what it is, what it is, it would almost take like a repeated immersion. Like you, you got to get a first race and that sting out of the way, even if you're super fit. And then you got to come back and race three weeks later. And you almost got to get back in that racing mindset and groove of Spartan race versus versus just jumping into one race. I feel like it would take a full immersion in like a season to really find your your ceiling again. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's like like anything. Like, there's there's a time trial I do around my house. I, uh, if you can see behind me, it, it, it basically circles around there. Uh, it runs up a it runs up oh, a road. Oh. That, casual, casual, casual moose sighting in your backyard oh, right. right now. Did, did oh you my gosh, do that that's, that on that's funny. Yeah, did, 
There's a moose in your yeah, backyard. That's right. Let's see if I can see it. There it is right there. Uh, I wish we had video for this uh, call. <laughs> so, yeah, we avoid the moose. We avoid the bears. But I, I run this loop. It goes up and over. It climbs 1,000 feet behind me. It comes around. It's four and a half miles. And then it, uh, it comes out through that pass right there. And it comes right back up my driveway. My point is it's a, yeah, so I was just kind of going along with what you were saying when you're talking about doing a Spartan race, you've got to kind of like, you can't, you might not be able to come back and do one. You've got to do one, feel the beat down and you'll get better. Not because maybe even you're fitter, but just because your body gets used to like what it takes to do well at it. So when I was talking about my loop, it's this, uh, it's this loop here I was telling you about where we run around, it, we, it climbs about a thousand feet on a road and then it comes down a trail and it loops back. Uh, through that canyon there and then it comes right back up my driveway my kids are at work <laughs> and it comes back to my house but there's a two mile section of it that's a that's a uh that's a popular strava segment and i had do i've done the loop so many times that i noticed i had like the fourth best time so then i thought oh, i'll just go do it and do that that segment hard <clears throat> and i got the fastest time but then I, I brag about it all the time so then uh, that brought out some of the better runners and then someone beat it by like 40 seconds but then I got like my race flats on. I came back and did it again. And I got the Strava segment back. But then someone else came out and did it again. I'm like, okay, now, now I have to like, you know, get fit as a mountain runner to start going after that again. But I guess the point is, it, it, yeah, it's, it's fun to seek out these like challenges, these little mini challenges. And, uh, but yeah, just agreeing with what you're saying is like, yeah, you, you do have to, you can't just expect to come back and do one and say, oh yeah, I sh it's going to be great the first time. You got to kind of get beat down a little bit and realize that it does hurt to, to do this. I've had a lot of people ask me about the sport then versus the sport now. And you talk about how, yeah, I believe like sports not so much greater now than it was then. And I agree and I disagree a little bit, but I'm curious to think if you had to match up the best people or the best skills of then versus now, how it would react. So like the best, like I, I would, for example, say that at your peak uphill climbing, I've never seen someone who can power hike faster than you. Ever. And I've never seen someone up like 30% greater higher faster than you. It's just even today in the sport, I, I don't know if it exists. And I would say like 2014 Hobie, I've never seen someone run faster between obstacles and transition faster than like 2012, 13, 14 Hobie. It's just there's no one that fast anymore. Now the depth of field is so much bigger, but I want to hear your right. like the best ofs. What do you think are then and now who, who are the best you've ever seen at things so i guess can i speak freely i don't want to speak in such a way that i sound like i don't want to belittle spartan or belittle anybody so that that's the caveat here fine do but i but i would say let's not forget that um hobie does have on his now albeit it was a, a slightly downhill mountain marathon he, he's run a 216 marathon right yeah yep john albin he won world cross country last year, two years ago. Uh, world sky running, yeah. Okay, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Um, yeah. Cody Moat, he won world ultra 50K in 2013. I'm just get, throwing out numbers. I think I'm pretty close. Yeah, he won the US marathon and the US 50 mile championship in the same year. Okay, I, I'm, I'm just giving some, 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 some background here. I was a, a definitely a top... Tops, I was one of the top cyclists in the country, and I was one of the, the best, uh, certainly one of the best mountain runners in the world at the time when I was around. And so, again, not trying to brag here, but I'm trying to give a little bit of a setup. 
to the point where there's a lot of good people who have done this sport and there's a lot of amazing athletes who do it now. Um, I took the obstacles super serious. Hobie took them super serious. I had them all built in my yard. I had them built in the forest. I practiced them like crazy. Um, the, the part where I would just real quickly to say one of the things that was lacking with Spartan race, when I was doing it, the courses were so freaking rugged. The obstacles were sometimes scary and they were always new. They weren't prefabbed. They were made out of a chainsaw with in the middle of a forest and they were creative. And that was awesome. The dilemma with for Spartan in fairness to them is as a business, there's a certain economies of scale. They couldn't continue to like take three weeks to build a course in Virginia or like put two and a half weeks to put Vermont together. That just wasn't logistically possible when you're trying to do 84 races across the world. Right. So as the sport progressed, I saw it getting to the point where, I mean, if you think back to the races we did, we all failed obstacles. Like you'd, I would win races because someone couldn't carry a super massive heavy log and then be expected to like run. But if you take out that massive heavy carry, I can't be expected to run a 15 minute 5k pace. And, 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 and there, I would say that the course, and, and now just to, real quickly, like in Spartan's best interest, people were getting hurt a lot and, and there was lawsuits and there was people, I don't know how many deaths there were. I'm going to say less than one, just throwing that out there. But I'm going to say, if you remember, we were all getting injured and cut and our, you know, massive people are breaking limbs and getting hurt. And, and, and it, there's a certain point where they had to say, okay, what's the, how extreme do we want it to be, but how can we not get sued as much? And they had to find that proper balance. They also had to find a certain amount of prefabrication of obstacles that, that could be built, structured. Okay, so when we started this sport, I say all this because th it used to be, remember that the motto was you'll know at the finish line? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What that meant then is you didn't know. We, we, there was like a secret map and it had like 10 obstacles. You didn't know what they were going to be. And it was always a surprise. And it was kind of scary knowing what was coming up next. Um, that motto is not there around anymore. I don't think, I mean, you'll, you, you know, every obstacle, there's no confusion. And like, and I say that meaning people don't fail obstacles anymore. And, you know, when I watch races now, people move through the obstacles Again, not saying they're easy. I'm just saying that the best of the best people who do it all the time, they're very practiced and they're very good at them. My strength or your strength or Hobie's strength at, at the time was we had our specialty. You were a phenomenally quick runner, a fast 800-meter runner, Bracken. I was a fast mountain runner. Hobie was efficient and fast at running. He was pretty good on trails. And you put that together and that's what allowed me to be really good. What, what allowed Hunter to be really good was that he was super strong. He wasn't the fastest runner, but he was fast enough. And after he would do something extremely strenuous, he still had the strength to run fast enough. And we all had our strengths. And I'm not, and I guess what I would say now is um, those aren't really strengths anymore. If everybody has them. And I'm not saying it's not because they haven't worked for them or they haven't trained for them or because of repetition, they haven't got there. But I will say that uh, there's not a lot of surprises out there when you come, get on the course. And so everyone's going to be pretty good at them. I watch the speed at which everybody goes through the obstacles now and think, I, I can't go through them that quick anymore. And I don't know if I ever did. I just know that, you know, we did them better than most people because we were racing the most and we saw them the most. But they were always different. and They're always rugged. And they were uh, it, was, it was kind of a different, different swing. It certainly is testing a slightly different skill set now. I think the biggest change in the sport other than the standardization has been the filling out of the second pack of athletes. 
I think that the top athletes from any era would still be the top athletes now. But, but the agree. guys that were maybe third and fourth best in the world, there's now 25 of them that For might sure. be all better than what they were. Like I, I think that being top 10 now is what top three used to be. And, and I think that's the big change. Everyone can carry now. Everyone can run downhill now. Everyone can transition now. And... And now it comes back to whose highest skill point wins out again. For sure. And, and I, I go, I totally second your point. Cause I remember looking at results back in the day and it's like, okay, first place, uh, 47 minutes, second place, 48 or 47 and a half, third place, 48 minutes, 10th place, uh, an hour and 17 minutes. You're like, what the crap? How could someone be 20 minutes slower and they're still in the top 20? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're totally right. Now it's like, it's consistently. Uh, there's a lot of guys doing it that are, that are all very solid. I, th- I think it, this is a shout out to the guys that I used to beat who, who beat me now. Some of the guys I used to beat by a lot, I'm pretty surprised when I'm like, holy crap, like I used to kill that guy. And now if I race them, you know, they, <laughs> they're beating me. So that, that definitely puts a, that's the kind of, that's the type of fire in me where it's like, what if I did get dialed in again and got my weight down to a mountain climbing uh, level? I know I'm fit enough still. I still can get my heart rate up to 196. I still can race hard, but I just need to get my body dialed into the sport. And that's the kind of thing that would motivate me to come back is I'll see some of those guys on Instagram where if I'm in a, in a trolling mood, I'll write a comment and then they'll write a comment like, who are you? You don't know what it's like anymore. It's way faster than it ever was. And it's like, oh, I'm coming back, brother. You know, so that's that makes it fun though, for sure. Here's what I'd like to see. Now, we didn't discuss any of this, but this is just if I was the puppeteer controlling Matt Novakovic, I would have you train to do the 2021 Mountain Series. I'd want you to go after the U.S. and Canadian Mountain Series and just stick to your guns and throw down on the courses that you want to throw down on. So the steep, rugged, the things that are most like the throwback courses and just find out like, yeah, maybe like... Temecula isn't isn't on that Monterey is not going to be happening and right. Miami you know Jacksonville is not going to be happening but that was never you were always tough enough and fit enough to hang there but that was never your mo your mo was I'm going to outcline everyone in the world I'm going to carry most of them and I'm going to not fail stuff and then we'll see if anyone can hang on I'd love to see you do a mountain series rather than a one off prove it all or leave it all right. in one race. I'd love to see a big build and a series commitment to taking back what was yours. Yeah. And I, and I, I do that. I think the only caveat to that is obviously we're going through a weird time right now. It's a stupid COVID stuff and right. it'd be fun to see that things are going to recover and get back to normal. So obviously that that's what it's going to take over the next week or two or a month or a couple of months as we see Spartan have some success restarting their races and, and uh, you know, I, I hope it all kind of gets rolling again and we all get back to normal and we can all start traveling at a normal level and it's fun to do that. And it, yeah, that'd be a totally fun thing to pursue. So how long would it take you until you were to the point where you thought like, let's say Palmerton or Whistler or something like that, where I can go out and I can throw down the way I want to throw down? What would that training need to be? Uh, my, my training's where it needs to be. I just need six weeks of dialing in my, my diet. I, I know that sounds pathetic that I don't do it, but right, right now it's like, you know how it is like four o'clock in the afternoon. It's like, okay, we're kind of hunkered down here. Uh, I, I haven't been able to work until literally starting this week. I haven't been able, I do roofing and whatnot and we haven't been allowed to. So you're sitting there like two in the afternoon. It's like, 
I could like sacrifice and not, not have a huge meal or whatever, but like, it's fun. Like, I don't want to, <laughs> so you just, just, just out of boredom or doing things that we wouldn't right. normally do, you know? And it's like, you can, I, I can train, I can double my training, but uh, there's also the other parts we have to dial in. And I guess I need to be willing to do that and motivated to do that. And that's why I got excited when I started seeing that Palmerton might happen. And then I talked to Joe about it a little bit and Yancey like, yeah, it's happening. And uh, that, I don't know. So, yeah, I guess it's a question for you guys. I saw that like Jacksonville might be happening on Instagram yesterday and it's like, okay, you'll be wearing a mask and everyone will have a mask and everyone's going to do this and do that. And you think, uh, that's not what, that's not what I want to come right. back for. I want to come back once it's rolling. Um, but yeah, I think that would be freaking awesome to try. So again, if there is that mountain series and if the challenge is put out and it's uh, a cool thing you say, yeah, heck yeah, let's do this. So I have one more proposal for you. Um, have you ever, um, th there's a, a knockout track race that started getting popular in the last couple of years where everyone runs um, a mile or a 3K or a 5K and whoever's been last place at each lap is out of the race. And you go until there's two left and then it's bell lap and first to the finish wins. I thought it would be incredibly cool to do on a mountain where you run up the climb and then you gondola down and whoever's the last up the climbs out over and over right. and over till there's two left with everyone in the current sport. What place would you take? Um, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't do it if I wouldn't say I didn't have a chance to win it. So I'd say I'd take first. So you're climbing still where you, where it was when we last saw you? Yes. Again, I keep coming back to the, back to the weight, but it, for, for people to understand how much it matters to be at your, your fitness weight, it's enormous. If you put on in a way to know that is put on like an 11 pound weight vest, don't, don't put on a 50 pound weight vest, but put on 11 pound weight vest and go run a 5k or go run your mm -hmm. best mile. And you're going to see what it's like. It, it, it's enormous, the difference it makes. And so you, you have to be fit and ready and, and, and ready to go. And, and I, I see that all the time. Cause I, cause I'll do like, I I'll even ski races or mountain running races or bike races that I do now, just being 15 pounds overweight. It's like, and again, I, I'm not saying like, I'm like lazy and fat. I'm just saying like, you have to be dialed in. So it takes, it takes a few weeks to dial in. And just the caveat here is I'm not, my daughter asks me all the time. She's a good runner and she's, uh, she's a senior in high school. She's like, dad, should I lose some weight to run better? And it's like, no, it's not like that. That's not my point. My point is that sometimes that Conor McGregor gets fit and light for a specific event. It may or may not be the most healthy thing to carry for the year, but that's why he races or competes once or twice a year. Same thing with Lance Armstrong for the Tour de France. He would trim down, lose almost 20 pounds for the tour. And then after the tour, he'd put on a good 20, 25 pounds throughout season. So I get so I want to throw that out there so I don't I don't so I don't get blown up by people saying oh he's telling people to like weight shame and weight lose weight too aggressively but you do have to dial that in so sorry to go on that tangent but it, it matters a ton um, no pun intended with a ton there but uh, power to weight ratio is everything in sports it's everything in car racing it's everything in uh, anything that requires watts or horsepower it's a power to weight ratio and so. It's a big deal. So again, if someone had the most important race in their life and they're you know seven or eight pounds overweight, like it's going to matter big time. So you notice that the most when you climb too, a little extra yeah, weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Climbing, climbing more than anything when you're going up, that's where you feel the effects. It's like one one extra pound feels like ten extra pounds. Yeah, yeah, and then that's a good point to make too that you bring up. This is about yeah, because because I can I can ski at an elite level 
because the skis are carrying a lot of my weight and like I'm actually really and on a world class level I, I I do really well on flats and rolling hills downhills but on the climbing I get annihilated because I've put on the muscle volume to be a strong skier but with that volume came the weight and so I don't climb well and it's the same yeah so that it, it, it gets magnified super aggressively as you start increasing the incline and again not not to say you want to be too light because then you lose power so that's it's that power to weight ratio and dialing it in perfect um something i wanted to ask you about matt this is a personal curiosity of mine um this is right when i started getting in the sport i started following you on instagram and these videos of you and lance armstrong were popping up and and i was always a big fan of him as a kid and what he had gone through and all that and of course there's now you know blurred blurred lines we'll call it with you know, everything that had happened with him, but you trained with Lance Armstrong for a while. In fact, you took Lance under your wings and tried to help him become a Spartan racer. And he's one of those guys that are larger than life. And and you got to know him. What, what was that relationship like with you and Lance? How did that all manifest? Um, it started because he was interested in doing a Spartan race. Um, he did the race in Texas first before he knew me. I think he failed like six or seven obstacles and he, he took like 70th place, I think, or something. Yeah. So a week later I get a call from Yancey and Yancey's like, Hey, I, Yancey had a connection to Lance. Cause like Yancey used to fill Lance's Learjet with gas when Yancey was in the air airfield f- refueling job. Joe DeSena reached out to Lance and said, Hey, do you want to try another one? Lance was like, I don't think so. Joe was like, hey, I got this guy, the bear, he's from Alaska, do you want to train him? And I'm like going to a workout one day and I get a call from Lance Armstrong on my phone. I'm just like, holy crap, like five years ago, I would have spent $1,000 for your autograph. And he, I was a huge fan of his. I mean, I, I, I watched every tour. I, I loved, that was when I was big into cycling. I loved what he did. I loved how he did it. Um, this is, has nothing to do with the drug part of it. I'm just saying. I, I was the same way. The level at which uh he trained and he dominated was was absolutely intoxicating and everyone loved it um anyway so he said would you want to train me and i'm like yeah of course and he's like uh do you want to come to austin and work with me so i went down to his home in austin and i met him and uh yeah that's just kind of how it started and uh i was able to train with him in austin and then i was able to go to his, his home in aspen and we did a lot of training there and I would say we have a pretty good friendship. I could, I, I could, if I called him right now, he might not answer, but he'd call, he, he'd call me back tomorrow. I could text him right now, and he'd, he'd text. So there's still a, a certain friendship there, and a certain respect. Um, he was actually pretty interested in getting into kind of this, over, you know, functional fitness Spartan thing, and he, and he was digging it, and he dug it pretty well for a few months. But then he kind of just, I think he lost interest. I think he kind of thought, you know, I'm just going to kind of get back into cycling, and he likes to run still. Um, and then it kind of just fizzled out. The ironic timing about that is when Lance Armstrong got an Instagram page, that was the exact same time that you started working with him. So the beginning, if you go back at like Lance Armstrong's Instagram and look at his first couple months, there's posts of him like laying on the floor dead next to sand sandbags. And he's telling Matt, you killed me today with my track workout. I had to do sandbag. Like the beginning of his social media presence is you kicking his ass in workouts. And I just find that really endearing for some reason. It just hits me right. It, it meant it meant a lot to me. It was a, it was a it's a it is and was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And and uh, yeah, I know. Back to the Instagram, just real quickly. Yeah, it was funny for me because I thought, too bad he didn't start Instagram 
the t- if I wanted to have been popular on Instagram, which I did, and for the, for for our brand and all that stuff to try to get sponsorships, that would have been really good timing if he would have been popular first before I, you know, because mm-hmm. I had more followers than he did at first, and so like the, the timing was ironic with that because I, but but that being said, I will throw this out when I met Lance. Uh, this isn't uh, to say what I would say is, is Lance is a very nice guy. His his love for his kids, his love for his wife, and his love for the community, and his love for everything he did. He, he's a he's a good man. And the the, the first thing I knew because I, I traveled around with him to several of his at the time he was trying to kind of mend his relationship with the world, and he was doing interviews. And I, I went to a lot of those where he went to forums and people stand up and say, "You mother freaking asshole! How dare you! You you how you misled all of us!" And I used to think. We've all made mistakes, and most of us would never tell anyone what those mistakes were. Lance made mistakes, and he told everyone what they were. But the part that I that I always I'd always think when everyone's like blowing him up so hard, I think he certainly raised hundreds of millions of dollars. He certainly influenced millions of people. He certainly helped millions of people. I don't know how many he hurt by coming out and having being one part of his success was using drugs, but at least he was full disclosure on it. And he was full honest about it and he got his ass kicked for it financially and uh, certainly on a, a social level. And so if, when you talk about repentance or someone paying their dues, I, I, I'm totally crap. He's paid his dues. And it's amazing to me to see the hatred for people, especially when they love someone so much than to then hate so much. Um, Cause again, just going back to that, I, I might've helped, a thousand people in my life and I might've heard a hundred. My ratio is 10%. I certainly haven't helped as many people as he has. And uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm trying to give him a shout out for like, uh, yeah, it was, uh, but at the same time, I think people don't realize how big of a program it was. It wasn't Lance cheating. It was Nike cheating and the United States postal service cheating. And it was, it was a, the doctors and the, the system, like, it was the entire. It was the entire sport cheating. There's seven years where there's no winner of the Tour de France because everybody was doping. I'll say this: I'm no doping apologist. In fact, I'm I'm far from that. But as much as I will rail against doping, the level of outrage that we in this world have towards our sporting heroes is not proportionate to the level of outrage we have towards mass murderers or. Right. Uh, financial criminals or, mm-hmm. or or really anything like that, that that our, our heroes and our icons, we reserve our greatest adulation and our greatest <laughs> hatred for. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. I will never support the things he did, but I will also oh, like freely admit that he is not worse for this world than like Bernie Madoff or, you know, certain politicians who do horrendous things in this, in our culture, right. like it's it's not apples and I mean it is apples and oranges here. And yet <laughs> right. We reserve such hatred for those people we loved. Well, and the other part I throw out that people don't realize is the system. We'll call it. Everyone monetizes on it until their careers have come to an end, and then they all get caught at the end, which is proof that everyone who was part of the system monetizing from this was benefiting from it, and then they get thrown under the bus at the end to protect themselves. If you look at Marion Jones. She went through all of her record setting and it was caught at the end. You look at Barry Bonds he, or Mark McGuire. They let him hit all their home run records, break all the records, become a complete hero and an icon. And then at the end, they're like, oh, by the way, he was a drug user. What a freaking asshole. It's like, come on. I mean, that that's the part where it's like, 
whether they, I mean, there's not, there's not even a question, but the, the whole system was a part of it. And I don't know the answer to this question, but how many of us, if you said, hey, you're a great cyclist, in fact, you're really phenomenal, would you like to be, would you like to start making $40 million a year and be a complete world hero? You're going to have to use some drugs. Everyone else is using it, but this is kind of what you're going to need to do. Um, and I will say to close, I don't, want, I don't like this subject that much because it gets old because everyone's already beat it down. But if you took the drugs away from everyone, he was still the best and he still trained the best. and He still had the most technology and, and the best team and the hardest work ethic. He was still the best. If everyone was drug free, he would have still been the best. If he wouldn't have used drugs, he would not have been the best if everyone else was using drugs also. And he's, he clear, he's clearly stated that many times. Um, if I wasn't training and I used drugs, they wouldn't help me at all. Just just caveat to anyone who's considering drug use. You, There's 99% of the stuff that has to be done correctly. Yes, the drugs, the 1%, do make a huge difference on athletes, but only after they've already done 25 hours a week in training and the, the nutrition and everything comes in front of it. So I think it's important for people to know that uh, there's plenty of fat, slow, unathletic people who use steroids and testosterone and all whatever drugs people use. Uh, that's not the secret. It, <laughs> there's no substitute for the training and the discipline and the, and the genetic makeup. Yeah, I think we can move on from that. I have a, one more question I want to ask you as a personal curiosity, Matt. Um, the world famous, okay, the U.S. famous Manitou Incline in Colorado Springs. I was told that you uh, you were there with the Beat Elite crew uh, a few years back, and it was your mission to go show everybody that you could just uh, you could crush that. And if I'm not mistaken, you threw down a pretty damn impressive time on the incline. What uh, what was going on there? I was told by Jack Bauer to ask you about that. I think the record was set by uh, it was set by a guy who was a good climber, who was a good athlete. And I don't remember his name. Mm, there was another guy's time that was they, they found out later that he had, he was using drugs while he was betwixt with cycling or something. So so the, the purists all said, well, his record didn't count because they found out later that he was using drugs. I think he's a cyclist or, a, or something like that. But again, that, uh, Matt Carp, <laughs> let's see. I don't want to get into this story too much because it's not that exciting. But I, I was at least going – I was, I, I was close to getting the top two or three fastest time ever on it. Matt Carpenter was one of them. The, uh, the Ono, the, the, the speed skater, had the, had the legitimate non-drug record. Do you remember that guy? Um, uh, Apollo Ono. Apollo yeah. Ono. Apollo Ono had the incline record? He used to train on there. Oh, what? He would do single leg hops up the incline. Apollo Anton Ono, the yawner, he always yawned before his race. Single leg hops up the incline and then double leg hops. And the thing to realize is one of the best, uh, one of the best, one of the guys who got top three in the world, Red Bull 400, which is straight up. He's a, a downhill skier. He's not an endurance athlete. He's not a mountain runner. And he's not that great of a mountain runner. But he, it, yes, you need massive power in your quads and your glutes. And that's a huge part of that race. And then, and, and I would say the incline is pretty similar to that type of power required. We should probably tell people exactly what the incline is. I think there's probably some that are scratching their heads. Why don't you tell them what it is exactly? The Manitou incline. It, it goes straight up. It, it was built something to do with some type of railroad system, right? Or a, a cog railroad that was no longer used. Straight up. There's no turns in it. It just goes straight up, and it's uh, takes what wasn't point eight miles, two thousand okay. feet of gain. Yeah, okay. If you, 0.8 miles and 2,000 feet of gain is like a average of like a 40% grade. I think it's 48 it? it averages. 
it, it's something you can't even imagine. Even technology like our incline trainers don't go that high. This is a legit pain cave, miserable, straight on mountain. That yeah. So yeah. So we went down there to try to, to let me break the record. I I think I got the third fastest time, if I recall. Call. I think there's a certain amount of disappointment that I didn't get the record, but at the same time, I look back and think uh that's a that's a something you 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 would have to practice 10 or 20 times because it's kind of weird it's like there's steps then there's not steps and then the steps some 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 are two feet high and some are one feet high there's not there's no consistency so matt i lived there for two and a half years about yeah 12 minutes down the road and i can tell you that had you gone back one week later you would have cut 30 to 40 seconds off just by doing it again it's all about strategy once you have the engine on that thing yeah, yeah, for sure. I could definitely see that. Yeah, the angle. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a tough one just to go like think you're just going to pop on and do it. Plus, I think you're at what, 10,000 feet there? Uh, or no, no, no. A little over uh, seven, seven. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because I'm thinking you move up and take the other trail and you're at the top of Pikes Peak. Which is, yeah, you finish over nine. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a cool event. It'd be, it'd be fun. But, uh, and now I think they've uh, fixed the stairs up and done a lot of re- renovating there. It's slower now. Oh, it makes it slower. A lot of the, I think so. A lot of the stairs have a, a bigger rise to them. Yeah. So I, in summary, my strength is definitely 30 to 40%, you know, a, a steady, uh, good, like you said, power hiking. Um, that's my specialty is definitely uh, a consistent grade. I always found that if, if mountain races were 10%, runners can fake that and runners can beat me a better runner with a bigger, bigger aerobic capacity. But if you go into power hiking, yeah, I was, I was definitely the top of my game at that. I just wanted to ask about that because for people who do know the incline, it just is a testament to your climbability because that is probably the the most famous test of climb fitness in the in the United States. And you went uh, twenty sure. flat, right? I think so. Yeah, twenty L. Right. That's very fast. Yeah. Be, yeah. Again, be fun fun one to try. That, those are tough too, though, because if you're not acclimated, then that puts a big uh, uh, bump in your attempt. All yeah. three guys who have ever held the record um, live at altitude. Joe Gray yeah, recently sure. in the last two years said it and he ran like 1640 or something crazy. Oh, that's so he's the record holder now, but he's the best short, like under marathon distance mountain runner in the world. And he lives in Colorado Springs. That's pretty cool. So he's, crazy. he's legitimate, but yeah, you, you have to live at altitude to climb at altitude. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Bear, let's um, let's jump back. I want to ask you about your uh, reflecting on your career thus far, and, and I think as Bracken said, I would love to see you tackle the mountain series. But I want to know they had just shown a couple of races of yours in those Spartan rewinds that we mentioned a couple of times. What race do you look back on um, that you're the most proudest of to date? Race win or loss, I suppose. But which one? Uh, which one is your fondest memory? Uh, the race I'm most proud of is Virginia. I, I, I won that four years in a row, and I never and I, I never lost. I did the first one there, and I did the last one there, and then they they haven't gone back. So that's one race I never lost at. I, I felt pretty unstoppable there. It was a perfect distance for me. It wasn't too long, so I wouldn't cramp, but it was long enough and steep enough and hard enough that I that was my that was my place. Um, at my best, I I felt like no one could beat me there, and I raced a lot of good guys there. I had a, an amazing battle with Hunter there one year where we battled literally back and forth, changed leads 20 times. And then I ended up beating him in the last gauntlet of obstacles. And that, that, that was one of my fun, funnest moments. I think my most disappointing moment in Spartan race was towards the end of my career or right, kind of in the middle, but that's when all the, 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 the newest best guys were there. So that, that was Breckenridge and Breckenridge had Hunter, 
Cody, John Albin, uh, Ryan uh, Atkins, and it was a TV race, and it was at altitude. It was like 13 deep of all guys who could win a race. Yeah, and I, and I don't think I was. I don't think anyone had me favored to win, but I, I was ready for the altitude. And I was. It was funny. I was kind of in no man's land. I was in. I was in third place, but I was about 30 seconds behind Hobie and Cody. But I was about 45 seconds in front of fourth place, and I was doing well. You know, I, 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 long, long story short, I got to the spear throw and Hobie and Cody were, were freaking doing burpees. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I had never missed a spear throw up to that point. And I got up and I threw it and missed it. <laughs> I was just like, holy crap. Atkins missed two that day. I think all four of you missed. They just put that rewind on, I believe. I just watched it yeah. yesterday. The yeah. And, and what was funny for me is like, that would have been my, that would have been my, my most legitimate win amongst the biggest field ever. And again, the, the spear, spear throw excuse is used by everybody, but that was my, that was my biggest disappointment where it was like, I did my burpees. You can't put in not only the time it takes to do the burpees, but the fatigue that takes to do the burpees. I, I think I've ended up finishing fifth and, and I think uh, Atkins went on and got third. Yep. But, but yeah, that, that's, that was my bi- biggest moment where I think, that would have been fun to have won that race because then now when I hear the youngins talk about, oh, you'd never compete with the guys now. You were never that good. That would have been a good one to say, oh, no, I beat them all. But mm-hmm. it's interesting, too, because like, I've never beat Atkins. I've never beat Cody Moat in a race. I don't – Bracken, I think I've only beat – you've beat me a lot more in big races than I've beat you. Like I remember like uh, Breckenridge when I – when I was in Breckenridge, I was a better climber than you. I had a big lead, but you were a way better descender. And I remember you caught me and scooped me up in that race. And um, so I guess my point is like, I would never claim that I was the best in this sport. I would just claim that we all had our specialties and given the right conditions and the right course, uh, I could toe the line with anybody. Now that race was interesting. I, I had the, the pleasure of watching the entire race. I was very fit at the time. And I got to the top of that climb with Albin and Atkins. The three of us were the pack behind you. And so I watched you, Cody, and Hobie do your thing. We had that nasty log carry. We did the hoist and then ran up to the spear. And I watched everyone come in and miss that thing. And when you got to, uh, I think DeSena was on course that day, right? Mm-hmm. And he, when when you got up there, I saw him next. And I knew, I could see what he was telling the camera. He was right, And I knew he was saying, Matt Novakovich does not miss Spears. He just won this race. And I was leaving the hoist watching you do it. And I just thought, this is unbelievable. After all this time, with all these studs here on this mountain, Matt's about to win this race. Right. And it just blew my mind when you missed it. Because you were like 26 for 26 or something crazy at that point on Spears. But I agree. That race, watching it, because Hobie and Cody were on fire. That was peak Hobie, peak Cody right. at altitude. And you were matching them on everything they did that was it was a really fun race to watch it hurt it was probably the most painful altitude race i've ever done yeah but for it sure. was really cool to watch you guys and, and in fairness they missed and i missed too so head to head had they made it and i made it i still would have had the, I, I probably would have got third still because i wouldn't have had the fatigue set in well here's how good you guys were i made it i was the only person in the top nine that made it and i took fourth place so you sprint that's pretty cool i mean it is but it isn't like I, I ran a perfect race. I was really fit. I hit my spear. Everyone did 30 burpees. Atkins out kicked me down the mountain to the finish line and you almost caught <laughs> me. Like you guys were just on a different level of climbing than, than we uh-huh. see right now, I think. 
Right. So I guess that's the, your motivation might be enough to make me say, okay, I'll come back out and uh, do that mountain series. That's the kind of thing that, that gets me excited is it, it, and it's not being popular. It's not the notoriety. It's just like what fire needs to be lit to get any of us to do anything, you know? Mm. And you, you should used to do it, Matt. And then you can come hang with your friends afterwards. We can all hang out. That's part of the nope. fun too. Don't forget that. Matt and I no used to kidding. have a post-race routine. Do you remember our post-race routine, Matt? Uh, yeah. We weren't the big partiers or drinkers. We both had families at home. So we'd, we'd just cuddle up in our hotel bed and stream the UFC fights. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was good times. We'd eat a lot of burgers and watch UFC together in our compression shorts laying in bed. <laughs> right. Is that where you practice your pillow talk that you now use on me, Bracken? Yeah. Matt taught me everything I need to know. <laughs> I will I will say I'm not afraid to admit Bracken Bracken taught me how to shave my balls and I've been shaving them ever since. <laughs> I went through the itchy stage and I couldn't understand how to make it happen and then Bracken's like, "Dude, just stick with it for a week." And I, I don't remember the exact procedure, but ever since then I've been clean as a whistle. I was a good spotter. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I remember. There's only certain things we know how to do in this life, and we always remember who taught us how to do them. So, Bracken's always been hands-on with his teaching. <laughs> yeah, it was over the phone. He taught me over the phone. This may or may not get cut out. We'll see. <laughs> yes, how do you indeed. want to move on from that, Bracken? How should we? Uh, how should we start wrapping this thing up? I don't think we top that. I, yeah, I guess I want to know. Okay, because you're on my Mount Rushmore of pain. Uh, my, my, you're, you're one of the five toughest people I've ever raced against. Thank and, you. And I think tough, like we said, is, is relative, like, but when you're on, when you're fit, you are one of the most stubborn racers I've ever met. You had the ability to will yourself into races that you didn't have any right being in, um, flat sprints, uh, stadium races. You were nasty in stadium races. We, we, we raced in Fenway one year, you, me and Hunter and Isaiah, and you and Hunter dropped us. Halfway into the race, I couldn't even see you guys anymore. And I just like went crazy, like throwing everything I could to try to catch back up to you. You're like 42 years old, a guy who doesn't do anything but incline trainer. And I was, I had to do everything in my power to catch up to you. Like you were one of the most, you're one of the five most stubborn racers I've ever raced. So I want to hear your, who are the, um, who is the toughest person you ever raced and who was, who do you think is the best racer that you've ever encountered? Um, you know, I think the cliche answer would be like, Oh, is it, is it Ryan Atkins? Is it one of those guys? It's like I didn't have any head to heads with those guys. So it's not that I don't respect them, but I, I never had any battles to make me mm-hmm. f- fear them or not fear them. But I had battles with you and I had bat- battles with Hobie and battles with Hunter. And uh, th- that's where I have to say, you know, you guys are on my top three list and it, it, because we did experience those, these battles together. Um, uh, you know, it, and, and that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the beauty of a sport is the people that were around and the friendships we make. And th- those are the ones who formed what we had and what we remembered as the best or the, whatever. And again, you know, not to go back to this relativity thing, but that, that's what matters is, you know, who we pushed ourselves against and beyond ourselves. Cause we're all pushing against ourselves, but, yeah, you know, it's, it's the people we were around at that time, the, the people in that race particularly, and all of us raced together a lot. And that that's that's mm-hmm. who I would put on my top three. So then who did you not want to see at a start line? If there was one guy that you just, I mean, you're not really that guy. You always wanted to take down the top dog. But if your goal is to win that day, who is the last person you wanted to see next to you? Um, now, here's where I will give a shout out to Atkins. 
I remember with world championships coming up the first time, uh, Joe DeSena was like, Hey, Barry, like, I really need you to win. I need you to win this race. I want you to win it, but I need you to win it. And I was looking at all the people coming to it. I, I digress. It was the second year for world championships. And I was again, prepared to win. And I, I looked at the field and I thought, okay, I'm not afraid of Hobie. I'm not afraid of Cody. I, I wasn't afraid of Hunter. I, I had it. I had it dialed in pretty well on who I needed to beat and, and where I stood. And it was Atkins. I heard that he was running like a, there was a guy that ran like 15 minute five Ks. And I was like, well, that's all right. Is he very strong? And then I remember hearing something about him doing like, uh, he was a really good climber, but he had like this crazy ability to do, I don't know if it was 20 or 30 pull-ups with a weight vest on, or there's there was something, something that I was hearing that was indicating that he was also really strong. He had his one arm pull up too at the time. Yeah. And, and I was like, that's the guy it would take to win to be the next. And best he had just guy. done like one eight on the incline tra- challenge too, right? That, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, and, and and that's when I knew like that was the fear that set in. So when that starting line started, and it's a real thing too, because when you look around that starting line, and if you can run comfortably but hard, that's good. But if you're running comfortably hard and nervous, and you're mixing that, it starts changing the way you race and. Um, I had a chance in that race. I remember the other day I got a little burned by Atkins. I was actually felt pretty disrespected by him when he said, uh, you know, there's some guy there named bear and I beat him by 20 minutes. And I go back to that event where he battled that with, uh, John Albin, all credit to Atkins though. He was the only one who survived that double sandbag carry, which looking back, that's what I loved. I loved that kind of stuff. But guess what? I couldn't figure out how to get them both on my shoulders. And I drug them with one hand and two hands and freaking took me forever. And I made it through it pretty well. But he was strong enough to pick them both up on his shoulders. He didn't set them down. He carried them the whole time. And he ran away with that race because of that. Um, again, all kudos to his strength and his ability to be able to do that. And I, you know, what's funny is the next year we all spent efforts learning how to lift them and how to get them both up on our shoulders and get, get good get good at that part of that event but uh that's uh that was a moment there because after that then i had never done burpees in a race um going into that event but i ended up doing two or three and i ended up cramping because my hand strength was all gone as was everybody's because we'd spent so much time like holding those bags trying to drag them and we just that, that destroyed that whole race and uh yeah so that was uh we had some cramping burpees next to each other at the end of that race yeah for sure i remember being on the going over a wall and going to the barbed wire and i was laying and i couldn't move and joe descent is like yelling at me he's like dude are you the are you the bear are you a rabbit what are you doing and i sit there looking at him going dude you don't know what it's like to cramp why don't you get in a race brother (laughs) (laughs) you know so that last mile of that race was the nastiest thing I've ever seen in any sport. <laughs> right. Yeah. There were like the gauntlet 17 of- obstacles in the last mile that were all failable. And we had just spent 35 minutes doing a double sand bay carry and then swam through the lake and everyone failed things. It was just, it was so awful. Yeah. That was, that was a wild event. So yeah, so that was, uh, I guess, the answer to that question, who I fear, who I respect. But I guess the bottom line is I, I respect any athlete at any race. I, I will say this. I've had races where I know knew for a bottom if, no, guarantee that I was going to win. Like there, I, there's, This is Spartan from cycling to mountain running and everything in between. There's races where I thought I was going to lose, and there's races where I knew there's no chance I could lose. But every, every time I tow a starting line, I'm just as nervous, I'm just as scared, and I know that anything can happen. And that's the fun part of racing is like, yeah, you got to be ready at every time. Yeah, that's it. 
We said it before, when the race nerves are no longer there, that's time to hang them up. Right, right, right. Matt, I want to ask real quick about your son. Uh, his name's Josh, is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. Uh, I know they highlighted him in, in one of his uh, races a few years ago. He went along. Is he planning on diving into any of this potentially, or is he going down a different path? Uh, I would say he's he's right in there. He, he loves to do a lot of different things. I never pushed him to early, you know, maybe the first couple months of parenting. I'm like, ah, oh, you're going to be a runner. You're going to be an endurance athlete. And I could tell he didn't have the, the drive to want to go out and do two hours of deadening running or two hours of climbing. But he's super athletic, so he can do anything. But yeah, in, in, in high school, he did wrestling and diving and parkour and like x game skiing type stuff and you know he just did a video i just put on my instagram of uh, he's on his mission right now and he's got about a year to go and i said josh you got to stay fit like don't don't come out of this mission being fat like you got i gave him a regimen of burpees and jump jump rope and uh push-ups and pull-ups and <clears throat> i want him to do that every day just to stay fit but i said are you fit dude and he's like yeah and i'm like send me a video of you doing burpees and i said so he sent me a video of himself doing a backflip and I said, can you make a video of yourself doing burpee backflips? So he sent me a, a video and I put it on my Instagram the other day and I thought, okay, he's still fit. He, he did three burpees, three backflips back to back. And I'm thinking, all right, you're, you, you got it still. So I saw that. I was impressed by that. That's why I was wondering if he's following his dad's footsteps here with maybe the Spartan stuff or if he was doing something different, but what an athlete that kid. Yeah, he'll be good. He came back from uh, Argentine, Argentina is where he was started his mission for a year and he had to come back for the quarantine and the, and the hunker down stuff. And he uh, came back and we, yeah, we went on a several hour bike rides and he, yeah, he, he, he kind of just kind of like me, he just loves challenges and loves stuff like that. And it'll be fun to see which of my daughters and which of, you know, Josh, my son, where they gravitate, gravitate to, but they definitely all have my genes. And so it'll come down to what sports they want to train for and what they want to put the effort into and what they want to do. Well, thanks for coming on. This is, this has been pretty cool. And I, I truly do hope we see you on a mountain series. Uh, I think I'm 90% in. If I, if, if I'm not, call me out and I'll, I'll, I'll go the other 10%, but we got to get everything organized first. And that's not on me. That's on Spartan and that's on yeah. the world and everything else we're kind of figuring out right now. Well, when it does open up, I'm up for another Anchorage uh, training weekend. Count me in. I, I think uh, I think you'd be a good companion to join uh, Bracken. Um, Bracken and I had a really good time. We, who, who else? We, we brought up uh, Killian. Killian. He's a good guy. That'd be a blast. Seen, seen Hunter up there. We should get a little training camp together. That'd be great. I'm going to bring my fishing rod, though, just so you know. That sounds fair. It's a good place to do that. You have to bring your hand wraps, too. It's, it's, it's the part <laughs> of the Anchorage experience to hop in Tuesday night at the fights. Yep. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah the Spartan racers never lost a boxing match in Alaska. That's what we know. We, we, we've proved that it's more important to be fit than it is to be a good boxer. That's what I've proven. I've, I've never lost a boxing match. I'm 5-0, and oh, and uh, I'm certainly not good at it. I'm just <laughs> keep on taking punches. And I, I'll say this. Most boxers, after about a minute, they turn into like an 8-year-old boy. If you can make it to that first minute with the fitness we have, all of a sudden you're uh, – Who else did it? Is Hunter 1-0? Hunter did it. You did it. You looked like a great fighter. Hunter looked like he was fighting a, a very poor, out of shape person. It looked very uh, sad. Hunter killed the guy. But <laughs> I, I watched that fight. Okay. Yeah. Hunter, Hunter's strong and fit too. But yeah, you looked scary when you fought. Oh, keep, keep pouring it on. <laughs> you know, I still, I still bring that DVD out from time to time during a treadmill session. And I watched that night of fights. Uh, it's awesome stuff. 
what a better what a better setting to have people that crazy and that into the into the scene too it's pretty fun oh yeah i think if this conversation has, has done anything maybe it's been a slight catalyst to get your wheels spinning about coming back and joining us in the mud bear yeah for sure you know i want to get involved or try to kind of revitalize my instagram and be around it more because yeah just seeing it and then being away from it and then going okay hey, that's something to miss it's pretty awesome stuff i think if you go back and watch that battle with you and hunter um in virginia i think that's all you need to watch yeah. i think you'll be i think you'll be registering for races that night that's what i think no and i, I still have a 100 percent invite from spartan i definitely lost my uh i think spartan has a new staff of instagrammers so i kind of lost my i don't get posted much by them but but joe still loves me he calls me all the time and i'm always welcome to come race for for free and be a part of it if i want to be so that that's that's certainly enough for me to come out and do it right on do you got any anything uh, you want to add bracken or, or matt no, just thanks for bringing me on. It was a blast talking to you guys. Yeah, it was good. It it brought back all the old race memories. And, <laughs> and I'm not joking about an Alaska weekend. We've got to make this happen. Let's do it. Mm -hmm.